Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And he swings, hits it high, and deep, and gone! Still going back! Yeah! Out of here! Welcome to the big leagues! Deep to center field, and it is gone! Wow, his first big league swing is going to be a grand slam home run. Swing and drive! Mountain right! Welcome to the show! New episode of The Call Up, and we have some catching up to do, Jack. We've got plenty of trades to discuss, prospects changing hands. We're going to break them all down. I'm Arm Layton. He's Jack McMullen. Of course, we got the Juan Soto deal. We want to break down all of the prospects included in that. But there's just been a lot of different deals here and there, Jack, of just prospects kind of changing hands. Might not be the biggest deals in the world, but if you listen to this podcast, you probably care about each and every one of them. So we're going to break them down, talk about you know what you can expect from them. And if you're a fan of one of those teams, you know where he kind of slots in to maybe your top prospect list. And then, of course, off the top, though, we got to talk about the new $100 million man. That is Jung Hoo Lee with the San Francisco Giants. I know that was more than you were expecting. It was more than I was expecting, but it also isn't a total shock either after you and I have kind of dove into what the Korean star can be, what he has been already, and the talent that he has and has put on display for seven, eight years already in the KBO and the World Baseball Classic. Yeah, so a couple things off the top. Um, speak for yourself because your bit Vivas and Victor Gonzalez for Trey Sweeney was my Super Bowl. That was maybe the biggest deal that we've gotten so far. Um, I was a little surprised by, I think the official number was 113 for six, but he's got a player option after four. So if he's good, he hits the market again at 29 years old. Um, what Like two main takeaways for me were number one, Otani got $700 million. I, I'm never going to view anything as an overpay again because that's where we're at with baseball money. Everything's an overpay. Xander Bogarts was an overpay. Trey Turner was an overpay, sure. Like, yeah, it's funny. It, it's a good point. I feel like for every, oh, that's good value deal we get, we get 10, oh, that's an overpay from like the general consensus of, of fans, which is a yeah, dude, consensus. Like at the time, Bryce Harper was a, a mind-boggling number at 330, and now we're like, they got him on a discount, 25 a year for Bryce Harper? Are you kidding me? Like, every deal is like that. There are yeah. only a couple guys, and you have to really not be good for me to look at $30 million and be like, yeah, like, that's, that's sunk cost. That's brutal. You have to be either Corbin level, or you have to be unavailable like Scherzer. Or you have to like not provide much value outside of the stick like Xander Bogarts. Yeah. And, and even then, like you could make the argument that Bogarts is worth the price point on an AAV basis. Is it going to be yeah. worth it when he's 40? No. So I think the contract conversation has just changed for me Yeah, because we've gotten to a point in baseball where the $12 million player five years ago is now a $20 million yeah. player. And exactly. we just have to acknowledge that now. And I was refusing to acknowledge it. 
And I think a bigger part of that too is, you know, and I wish, I wish we could do like a GM survey and say like of each free agent deal, did you think this was more or less or whatever? And, and then, then he should have got and see what all of the GM say, cause it's going to be based on what they were willing to give the player. And those are usually, that's usually what sets the market, right? Those are the guys that ultimately, or girls that end up deciding what, what they're worth and, and pay them. But what's yeah. interesting with the center field market, particularly is I think we talked about this, you know, a couple episodes ago when we did dive into Jung-Hoo Lee is that he he enters, I think, at the perfect time where you do have some young center fielders that are exciting, but those guys are under team control for a long time, aren't going to hit the free agent market anytime soon. And that's only a couple guys. Then you have some vets that are really good, uh, but there's not a lot of middle ground in the center field uh, market, uh, whether it's free agency, which we know is thin other than Cody Bellinger. And you know he's going to get paid a ton. But also just the center field position in general. We talked about it, I think, where there was only a couple guys that had an F4 above four, and there's only a handful of guys that had a WRC plus above 100. Like it is rare to get somebody that can play defense in center field and give you uh, at least above average offense. I think the league wide WRC plus for center field was 95 last year. Who are the three most valuable center fielders in baseball right now? I'd say Julio Rodriguez, Luis Robert. Do you count Mike Trout? Like, I'm actually going to omit Mike Trout for the meantime yeah. because we know that contract's going nowhere. So it's Julio Rodriguez, Luis Robert. I would throw Michael Harris in there as number three. I think those are the three guys where it's like, if I had to start from scratch and I had the first pick in center field, those are the three that are making my big board. I think Julio is far and away number one. And then I think it's Luis Robert, number two, and Michael Harris, number three. Michael Harris is locked up for the next nine years. Julio's locked up for the next 10 years. Luis Roberts locked up for, I think, the next three. So, yeah, like there's going to be a minute before any of those gold standard center fielders hit the market. Yeah. And and Nimmo, dude, what did he get? Six years, 160? What was 68. It? Yeah. I mean, like that Nimmo's really good. And I think you're hoping that Lee can give you, I think, his best outcome is something that you've gotten from Nimmo the last two years, which is four to five one player. Uh, all of a sudden, a little bit more juice too. But I think there's some similarities in terms of the OBP, uh, you know, maybe just enough slug and improved defense up the middle. But what I think is interesting is you, know, you look at the center field kind of collective here. TJ Friedel was sixth in F4 last year of qualified center fielders at 3.4. Brandon Nimmo, you know, gave you a 3.4 last year as well. So actually a little bit down from, from the number that I thought. But the point being, Joe Hu Lee could very easily give you a 3.5 win season. I don't think it happens in the first year, but let's say he gives you a 3.5 F4. That would have put him fifth among major league out center fielders last year. So let's dive into like what the possibility is that he does that year one, Jack, and and then maybe what it looks like year two, year three. If you want a little bit more on Jung-Hoo Lee, check out one, we're going to be putting out a, a video um, on the Just Baseball Show YouTube where it's going to be about 10 minutes of me breaking down everything you need to know. But we also have an article live that's linked in the episode description. And we have an episode a couple episodes ago where we dove into all of those international prospects. So definitely go check that out. But going back, like kind of referencing what we discussed before on that previous episode about the bat to ball, the speed, the defense. You know, I do think the defense is going to be closer to above average than plus just out of the gate getting reads. There's been some inconsistencies with his jump. He is coming off of an ankle injury. Like th there are some things there. So let's say he's a, a solid defender in center field. It's really going to be how much does the bat contribute right now? You put him in Oracle Park where the power is not going to play, right? 
whatever the home run potential was, which I think was closer to 10 to 15, might be more five to eight there. Does yep. have more space to work with in the gaps. I We talked about, I've showed you a bunch of video and like we've gone over it together about how he can split the gaps, how he uses the whole field so well, and how he does have sneaky pop to the pull side. We've talked about Luis Arias and how people were like, oh no, he's going to Lone Depot Park in Miami. Now is he's going to hit no homers. Coincidentally, hit the same amount of homers. But even if he hit less homers, the opposite is, oh, he's got way more room to work with. And these guys are elite bats of ball wise. You're giving them more of an area to just spray balls and more space for them to fall between, you know, the nine fielders that you have out there. I see that as a big part of why I think Jung Hoo Lee is actually going to play well. I look at that pull side gap and I say there's a lot of room there. I think he's going to have a lot of triples. I think there's going to be a lot of space for him to bleed little bloopers through because people have to play deep out there in San Francisco. So I think this is going to help ease his transition from a hit tool perspective and help him at least be like a big league average hitter right away. I do think it may limit the upside, though, a bit. Do you think that's a fair takeaway based on where he's playing? I, I do, um, because if he hit 15 homers as opposed to seven homers, we're looking at those guys in totally different lights in 2023. I think in 2012, we're not doing that. But this version of baseball, homers are not everything, but they're relatively close to everything. But I'm going to ask you now, kind of like a blind resume test. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you a number in certain statistical categories, and I want you to tell me if you expect that number to be higher, lower, or pretty on par with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, let's start with walk rate. You think he can walk 10% of the time? Yes. Okay. Uh, you think he can punch out 10% of the time, or do you think that number is going to be higher? Mm. I think right, right there. Okay. So 10% walk rate, 10% K rate. Yeah. Give or uh, take a percent or two. He- with the doubles, factor in the doubles in San Francisco, you think he can slug 400? Not the first year, but I do think okay. he can slug 400 eventually. I'm going to say no to the first year. Okay, so you think he can slug like 360, 370? I think he can get 380, 390. Okay, you think he can hit 270? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, do you think he can hit 300? Not first year. I think the velo- okay. there's going to be an adjustment to velocity. He just... You're not seeing that as much. He could handle it. We saw it in the WBC. So maybe the adjustment is not as as big, but I think day in, day out, high carry heaters, it's just going to take a little bit of time and probably enough time to where he just won't be able to recover to three, you know, 300 by the season's end. Yeah. You think he can swipe 20 backs? Depending on the ankle, yes. It hasn't been a focus for his game, but I think they hold runners on a lot better in the KBO. And I think that with the new rules, yes, I do think he can seal 20. He's going to try to squeeze out every drop of value too. Yeah. Okay. So you, you think it's going to be like a 110 WRC plus? Probably. And I, it might be a little bit so below we'll be, that year one. It, it might be league average across the board with good defense. That's a two, three win player. First year, get your feet wet. He's 25. I was going to say, so what we just found is a hybrid of Stephen Kwan's first two seasons in Major League Baseball. And I know that you highlighted Kwan in the write-up, but I was literally going through Kwan's fan drafts page and I was combining the two years because Kwan was underwhelming in 2023. He was a four and a half win player because he had a 126 WRC plus in 2022. He had an 100 flat WRC plus in 2023, and he was a 2.9 win player. And that was in left, right? Like, imagine if he was playing center. He is a gold glover. He's a yeah. gold glover in left. So 
you've got a guy in Lee who is gold glove capable in left field. He's mm-hmm. going to play center field where he has more chance to accumulate war. We're looking at a three and a half win guy. Yeah. So now I ask you if Stephen Kwan hit the open market right now and Kwan is 25 years old, same age as Lee. I think Stephen Kwan's in a hundred million dollar player. Um, I it's think crazy. That- and like you laugh, I know you're going to say mm, like 60 to 70 over four years. But dude, like that's not the market we're in anymore. I I think you're making a good point in terms of there's a value, like the cyclical nature of baseball to where we've come back to a circle where these Stephen Kwan types are valuable. And I do think that this is a good, I think his agent's going to be referencing this deal very soon. But so, so I think I there's more you, to dream on. I ask you, okay, yeah. So I think where, I, I want to know the price of the unknown because there's clearly a 20-ish million dollar bump here with unknown. And yes. Jung Hoo Lee. And that's, if we I, knew everything, he's an $80 million player. But because we don't know as much, we just know that there was success in another league that's probably double A adjacent. There's unknown. So we're calling it a $20 million bump. And I think Quan could be closer to that if if this past year was similar to the 2022. Like if he has a 2024 is somewhere between 2022 and 2023, I think you got a really strong case. I think the price for the unknown, which the unknown, by the way, is about two more ticks in the average exit velocity, you know, a couple more ticks in the 90th percentile, which could result in, you know, at least fringe average power relative to Quan's below average power. We're talking about a difference of maybe 30 power to, to 40 power or 30 power to 45 power. Like that's what the difference would be there. I think that unknown is a plus center field, you know, just being a more premium position. I think that unknown is worth about $25 million. Yeah. 25, $30 million. So it makes sense. I think Quan's a seventy million dollar player. Like I, I do think he is. If if he takes a step back forward next year, I do because the sport is yeah. in desperate need of players like that. So many lineups are desperately looking for guys like that, and that's I always talk about the cyclical nature of things and why I think prospects like Quan are going to start to become more coveted again because they are a little bit easier to scout. Yeah. They're easier to ID. It's way harder to ID a guy that you know. Oh, this guy hits the ball really hard, and he's going to figure it out in the hit tool department. Knowing who can convert you know power into also consistent bat to ball is really damn hard it's a lot easier to see a guy that's already got the bat to ball down and say oh he can grow into some more power or if he can't you can say oh but that's going to translate to at least this so i I think that's going to be a part of it that we're going to see a lot more value in the stephen kwans of the world and i think this is a perfect example to your point though 100 million dollars for an unproven contact oriented player and I say unproven, it's relative, but unproven for an MLB free agent, definitely. Is there anything unknown about us? Like, could we combine for five to ten million dollars worth of unknown? It, not in anything I can think of. What would we combine for? What would we? What would be the? What would we be doing? I think I'm too open of a book. Like, I think if I kept more, it just introverted. I could be worth about $2 million worth of unknown for Yeah, some they'd be looking at you and saying, person. oh, that guy could be a really good Fortnite streamer. That guy's mysterious. Yeah. 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 Like he's got hey, more in the bag. Drop it, drop a couple LBs and you look exactly like Nick F30. Let's talk about some of these trades. So we've got the Verdugo deal. We're going to go chronologically by date. So the Alex Verdugo deal, which is just so funny for so many reasons. You get Verdugo going from Boston to New York. I've got one more update though. Ooh, one more update. What's that? I've got one more update. I'm sorry. The Yamamoto thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see the Yamamoto news? Uh, apparently, they've got 
they're doing everything they can to, to court Yamamoto over there and now. By, and by everything, the Dodgers had their meeting with Yamamoto, and Fabian Ardai of The Athletic said that Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Will Smith, and the newest Dodger, Shohei Otani, were in attendance for that. So we talk about Lee getting $100 million. It sounds like there might be 250 going to Yamamoto by way of SoCal. Like, oh, my God, man. They're doing some crazy shit over there. I mean, and if that doesn't tell you how good Yamamoto is, like, I felt like I was being exaggerative when I was talking about, oh, he could be a top five pitcher in the game. And I, I really think he can be, you know, I've saw Eno Saris was discussing like, oh, he doesn't really have a slider. And that's kind of a concern for me. And, you know, I, I totally hear, you know, on that. And he's probably looking at, you know, the, the pitch data and he's probably watching starts and saying, yeah, there's, there's not really a true slider there, but he has it. And we've talked about it. Like it's, it's been there. Um, it's just hasn't been used because doesn't see as many right-handed hitters. And for whatever reason, he didn't really need it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think he's got the pitch though. And he, I think he's going to throw it more here. So if that's the concern, and Eno is one of the best minds in baseball, like if, if his biggest concern is something that I think is not actually a, a huge issue. And, and I like, if I ever had a chance to talk to him, I'd probably be able to talk him off that ledge. Then I bet Eno would even be like, Oh, this is probably a top five pitcher then. So I think that is almost furthering the reality. Like the Dodgers are a smart org. They've got even more access to even more information than we have. And they're pulling out all the stops to sign this guy. Holy crap. Uh, yeah. It's going to be crazy. Doing, man. I, I hope he doesn't go to LA just because I don't want people to lose their minds. Um, and and I, I, I selfishly would love to see him go to New York so I could go see him a little bit more in person. But, you know, it would be cool to see, you know, two of the best Japanese players and two of the best players in the world on the same team and, you know, all of the interest that that would bring internationally. I'm sure they'd have a, a Japanese series lined up immediately uh, right after that oh, and all that good stuff. But, you know, uh, so let's spread, let's spread the guys out a little bit. Let's spread these studs out a little bit. I am fine with him going to LA because I'm fine with people freaking out. And um, you said it on the just baseball show, like, you can't buy a championship. And I know that a lot of people's rebuttal was, well, the Rangers just bought one. No, the Rangers bought and developed. And the, yeah. it was a best of both worlds. situation. Yeah. You, I think you buy wins. You don't, you buy regular season wins. I don't think you can buy a championship. And that, that's what I've always kind of like keyed on. It's like, you can buy those wins. You can't buy the championship where there's a direct correlation between winning percentage and spending. Obviously you get better players over 162. Cream's going to rise to the top, but you got to be built a certain way and structured a certain way to be able to survive the postseason. You've got to be able to have those Evan Carter stepping in and, and being able to plug in. You've got to be able to survive the battle of attrition over 162. When guys get hurt, do you have somebody that you can plug in like an Evan Carter? Do you have the trade assets to go trade for arms that can bring in? They didn't spend money to go get Montgomery. They made trades off of a farm system that they have that is really good. You know, they, they didn't spend money on a lot of the other guys that they went out and got, they used assets to go get them. Then they had the big money for the core. So that that's the way it works. And for the Dodgers, look, if they're going to win the world series, it's not just going to be about Mookie, Freddie, Shohei, and whoever it's going to be some of these youngins that we just talked about. Is it them being converted into an asset? That could be one of it, like Bush or one of these arms, or as we've heard, you know, in the rumor mill, could it be a peppy out and, and other pieces of which we're going to talk about at the end, getting flipped for a Tyler glass now, or is it one of those guys stepping up and having a big part in the rotation or out of the bullpen? Like it's going to need to be some of these young guys, Outman, home grown, developed. Like you're always going to need to develop some guys. Lux, hopefully it all clicks for him and he's healthy. That's a homegrown developed guy. 
at the end of the day, you're always going to need to have those guys too. And, and that's always going to be my case, but homegrown developed guy from LA that they cashed in early and then sent over to, yes. uh, to Boston in that Mookie deal is, is Alex Verdugo. And that's another example, right? Verdugo, really good prospect. They probably looked at him like, eh, you know, he's probably limited and this could be a piece that gets us Mookie. They trade him. He was good for a few years in Boston. It is what it is. I think, you know, it kind of soured on the way out and, you know, it just didn't seem like it was going to happen there. He goes to New York and you rarely see trades between these two teams for obvious reasons. And I think the reason why this trade was okay to happen is that the Yankees one have been trying to get a left-handed hitter for, for so long in the outfield and they got a chance to do Andrew Benatendi all over again. So I'm sure that got Brian Cashman real excited, but beyond that, uh, I think they felt like they were parting with solid, a solid pitching prospect here and, and two decent prospects, but ones that would not guys that would not really keep them up at night. You know, I don't think they're going to lose sleep over giving up Richard Fitz here, uh, though. I do think Richard Fitz is good and we're going to break that down. Like, I think it is a good get for the Red Sox, all things considered. And then Nicholas Judas, big, tall, six foot eight pitcher, intriguing. Again, I think the Yankees are like, Go ahead. You know, if you develop this guy, we'll tip your, we'll tip our caps. Like, you know, and I'll get into him a little bit more too. And then of course they throw in Greg Weissert, who you're probably not throwing a bullpen piece over to Boston unless, you know, you feel like, eh, he's probably limited. Fitz is the big get here. And I think given the state of the Red Sox farm system, given the fact that Verdugo is coming off the worst year of his career and limited control and, you know, isn't free. Yeah. You know, what is he? Eight, nine million this year. Um, I think so. Yeah. I, I thought it was solid to get Fitz in the fold there because He's instantly one of the better pitching prospects the Sox have in the upper levels. He is, and I wonder how early he's going to be thrusted into the big league situation because those guys, if they were in the Red Sox organization over the last two years, I'd say, they would be thrusted into the big league situation. And I think that we saw Brian Bayo prematurely thrusted Mm -hmm. into that situation, but they've kind of pieced it together, man. I mean, Brandon Bernardino was opening games for them far more often than he should have been. Chris Murphy, I love the guy. One of the great personalities that that I've met in my, you know, calling baseball time, but you know, Murphy, he had the chance to be a very serviceable starter for them. He came up too early in his maturation. He really struggled in starts, so they move him to a bullpen role. And and Chris has figured it out, but like he's now a tweener. Mm-hmm. What they've done is like they've unfortunately pushed guys that aren't necessarily ready. And Fitz, I feel like it doesn't necessarily matter if he's ready or not because it's as close to a finished product in double A as you will find yeah. from a 23-year-old. 152 and two-thirds innings this year across 27 starts. That's nearly six innings per start. Punched out 10 per nine. He didn't walk anybody. It was two walks per nine. He was voted so um, you know, managers across each league, like the International League, the PCL, the Eastern League, the Southern League. They'll vote on awards at the end of the year, and it's best contact hitter, best power hitter, best fastball, best curveball. It's not best command, but it's best control. And managers in the Eastern League voted Richards Fitz as the pitcher with the best control in the Eastern League. So this is a guy that is never going to beat himself, and that includes his major league debut. I think this guy, yeah, he could get hit around a little bit in June at Fenway if he makes his debut on a Tuesday night. But, man, like, that's okay. I'd rather a guy get hit around than walk five guys in the first inning and and hang his head for the next four days. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. And and I think that's important. They just needed more arms that are just capable of eating some innings and plugging into the rotation if needed. Fitz, it's a 93, it's a 95 mile an hour fastball, decent shape. I'd say it's above average. And then the slider is his best pitch. That's that's been his bread and butter. And it was better and better for him as the season went on. He landed that first strike 70% of the time and held opponents to a buck 80 batting average. So those two pitches alone, you know, are going to allow him to get some big league hitters out, <clears throat> whether it's in a swingman role or whatever. Then he mixes in a changeup and a cutter in a taste breaking curveball. So he can kind of just mix it up and I think get guys out at the highest level as maybe a spot starter, fringe five type. If it all comes together, if the command's really, really good, I mean, he only walks 7% of batters, but in terms of just like the fine command, you made that distinction that it was control, not command. I think he can be a, a, a back end of the rotation starter. So if you get that out of one year of Verdugo, that's great. I think it's most likely that he's a you know long relief guy. And if you spot start him, he doesn't implode. I think that's also important too. So a decent get there for for the Red Sox, all things considered. And you know, I don't think the the value for Verdugo has really ever been lower. So nice to get him there. And then Nicholas Judas, he's twenty two, he's six foot eight. So this is like this is a project. And you know what? When you're not going to get a huge return value wise, you can either get big league depth or you can get a project, the lower levels, and see what happens. And that's the route that the Red Sox go here. They get a kid that was you know, older for the college class, obviously was just drafted. We haven't seen him pitch professionally yet, uh, but did show pretty well on the Cape enough to get drafted. It's low 90s with the fastball, but good extension. Seems to get on hitters pretty quickly. And then he's trying to figure out the secondaries. It's a work in progress. He's a project, but he's 6'8", 225. And we'll see. He's 22. Like I prefer my projects 19, I agree. not 22, but you know, beggars can't be choosers. I, I do think that they did a nice job getting both of those things. You mentioned they could have gone a couple of avenues and they either get, you know, big league depth or they get a project and they got both in Weissert and Judas. Yeah. And I, I think that those guys probably had identical value because Weissert has been up. He's struggled, but you've seen what that sweeping slider can Oof. do. A, it, ridiculous, but like you need a fastball to kind of work off that thing, and you need to be able to land that thing for a strike. And then Judas is is a good example of, hey, it may not pan out. We're not losing sleep if it doesn't pan out, but if it does, it's hey, remember when this guy was part of the Verdugo deal? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, so I, overall, I think a good a good return for the Red Sox, all things considered, and for the Yankees, like not going to lose sleep over it. But those could be arms that they ended up needing to use because they traded some really intriguing arms also at the upper level. So we'll talk about that in a second real quick before we get to the Soto slash Grisham trade. I just want to briefly hit on Justin Slayton and Ryan Ammons. I think it's Ammons. Uh, that was a rule five swap. Yeah. So basically teams will you know, that are drafting later in the rule five and are worried that someone's going to get taken. They'll make an agreement with the team and say, Hey, if you take this guy for us, will give you any of these prospects or who are you interested in of our system? And then they, they work it out. They were able to work it out. I thought the Mets should have kept Slayton. I thought I really liked that, that get, I thought he was the top arm. I know we didn't talk about him in the preview, but once it got closer and his name started to get floated and I did some more research, I, I thought he was the top. I, now I still think he's the top arm you know, out of, out of anybody that was taken. And it's a, it's a good get for the Sox now to, to to be able to bring him in. And and again, we're talking about more pitching depth. This is another another guy that 
I think plugs right into the bullpen, but can give you multi-inning stuff. Fastball is really good. He's got three pitches that had a chase rate above 25%, two pitches in the cutter and slider that had a chase rate flirting with 40%, swinging strike rate of 18% on the cutter and 20% on the slider. Uh, the fastball shape is great. And he gets good extension. It's like 19 inches of vert. And he's 6'4". It's just effortless. I, I think this is a really good arm to get. And he seems to be somebody that could go multi-inning relief or one-inning high leverage. He's going to be a Swiss Army knife for them, I think, because the, there's going to be a lot of games. I think the Red Sox are going to solidify the staff a little bit more. But we know like it, it's, yeah. it was a battle for them to, to bridge the gap to the back end of the bullpen. And Slayton might be the perfect guy to do that. If your starter only gives you four, Slayton can give you two really good innings and get it over to the rest of the bullpen. Or he could be a seventh inning guy for them. I think the stuff is good enough to be that or an eighth. I, I like the seventh inning mold. And I, I think, yeah, it's great that every team has a good closer. It's awesome if you have a setup guy. But if if every team had a Kelvin Herrera or at his best, like a Henesis Cabrera that just comes out throwing fireballs and that shortens the starters game from seven to six, you're in a really good spot as a team. And I think Slayton kind of fits that bill exactly. Because if I'm not mistaken, one inning spurts, he was up to like 99, right? Yeah, no, and it's good shape. Like he's blowing it by guys, overpowering them. Okay, so 99 with a with a good slider and, mm-hmm. and that cutter to follow. Like, dude, like that's seventh inning if I've ever heard it. It can yeah. be eighth. It can absolutely be eighth. But, you know, if the Red Sox can find that elite closer, and then have Slayton as the seventh or eighth guy, like set up one or set up two. I'm I'm totally in on that. Yeah. Going the other way as well in that deal, Ryan Ammons. Um Clemson reliever for four years, hasn't yeah, thrown a pitch thir- in Pro Bowl yet. Yeah, 13th round pick. Um, you know, I I I think it's just kind of a flyer there. I, that's why I was surprised that they that they did it, but uh like free lower level prospects, they didn't have room on the 40. They wanted to make that pick for the Red Sox. I think the Red Sox also kicked in the cash. So it was literally just a free prospect. They basically traded their rule five pick for a 13th round pick in, in this past year's draft. So uh, interesting swap there. Yeah. Let's get to a far more interesting swap, which is Soto and Grisham for Michael King, Kyle Higashioka. And then, of course, where we like to dive into a little bit deeper, Drew Thorpe, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez. We'll start with Drew Thorpe, who is our number 78 prospect in baseball. And one of my favorite pitching prospects to watch because it's so simple. It's consistent. There's uh, just a rhythm to him. He pounds the strike zone. And pretty much every single pitch that he threw last year in terms of his fastball changeup, curve, slider, cutter, they all produced negative run values uh, based on basically just the, the way that he was able to limit production and, and keep hitters off base and keep runners off base. 34% strikeout rate, 7% walk rate across each level. Thorpe is just a pitchability stud. We've talked about him in that through that lens, but the fastball ticking up a little bit to 92 and, and change, and then also improving in shape a little bit has been huge. Fastball is never going to be great. It's going to be average at best, but to be able to just have that be closer to average and just be able to spot it the way he does then setting up the change up at 82 miles an hour that I, I think is the best change up in the in, in the minor leagues period. And some of the more ridiculous numbers yep. I've seen. Can you believe I don't think I've ever seen anything like this in zone contact rate against his change up. Just for reference, MLB average in zone contact rate across every pitch is 80 percent, right? 
in zone contact rate for minor league hitters against Drew Thorpe last year was 38%. Are you serious? And that's with a 33% chase, with a 33% swinging strike rate. So that means 33% of the swings you're taking are, are strikes. Like That is insane. Absolutely insane. That's got to be the most dominant pitch in the minor leagues last year, I think. And then he mixes in a curveball that was effective for him, uh, 25% swinging strike rate. Slider that was effective for him, 20% swinging strike rate. This guy's got an arsenal, man. It's not just the changeup. He's not Gavin Stone. He's he's better. He's he's. I think everything that we were hoping Gavin Stone would be. And he's durable as shit. Like he he averaged over six innings a start. He threw 139 a third innings in 23 starts. What I will say about that changeup is that needs to be a perfect storm of characteristics with that pitch to warrant that much in zone whiff. And the characteristics are movement. Like it it can't just be a, a change of pace taste breaker and it can't just drop a little bit. Like that thing has to move horizontally and Thorpe's does move horizontally. It also needs to have some serious separation from your fastball. Like I, I think now more than ever before, we're seeing mid 90s fastballs and high 80s change-ups in the same arsenal. And that doesn't work. Like, you need 10 to 12 miles an hour worth of separation if you want If you want it to be a whiff pitch. Up. You know, if you want it to be a ground ball pitch, that can work. You know, like a sandy yeah, type. Yeah, it's fine. But, but you got to be but more like, fine. If you, want, if you want to get strikeouts with your change-up, it needs mm-hmm. to be 82 if you're throwing 95. And Thorpe's is 82 miles an hour. Yeah. And it moves horizontally. And it looks exactly like his fastball. And that's the other ingredient, right? It's like... Does it look exactly like his fastball until it's too late? It does because it it is his arm speed, his release point, and also just the way it carries. For whatever reason, he's just got this God-given ability to throw a ball that looks like a fastball up until the last 15 feet. It's and when people say Bugs Bunny changeup, it's it gets thrown around way too much now. But his really is that where it's that, you know, that clip that you've seen where he throws the ball and it goes into slow motion and those big dudes with the stick swing and miss in a row. Like that's, that's what the pitch does. It really almost slows in midair and, and just dips. So that's what makes it so special. But I think the big thing is no one really expected the curveball and the slider to develop the way that it has. And maybe some of it's because of the deception and the way he, he he's an elite tunneler. Like I think this guy has really worked hard in the Yankees. You got to give him credit. They develop arms. They've continued to do so. You see the sweepers across, you know, all of their pitching prospects that have you know really ended up being good for them. I know they haven't developed a lot of arms into like consistent big league studs, but they have taken a lot of prospects in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth round. And, upgraded them, turned them into better prospects and packaged them elsewhere or have used them in certain spots. So I think this is just another example of that success. And they've really helped get the most out of Thorpe. And I think he should be big league ready by the middle of this season for the Padres. Could be ready even sooner than that, depending on how aggressive they want to be. Yeah. Last thing on Thorpe, this guy started, I want to say 17 of his 23 games, maybe 18 of his 23 in high A. He goes to double A Somerset. 30 and a third opponents hit a buck 44 against him. The whip at 0.66, 44 punch outs, five walks. He got way better in double A, not just slightly better. Way better. And, and that's the, that's the cool thing about it too, is that it just seems like he just continued to learn and develop and just become more of, of this guy that we've seen over the last you know, couple of weeks, just growing into that role and growing into that pitcher. So we'll go into Johnny Brito and Randy Vasquez here. And these are two guys that, you know, I, I, they're obviously not the headliners, 
but it is good pitching depth for for these Padres who I think are going to go make some other moves too. these could be guys that get repackaged. This could make them more comfortable to trade some of their other arms that we've discussed, you know, and also, by the way, that double A rotation or triple A rotation could be insane uh, for for the Padres this coming year with with some of the other arms that they have. We'll get to that in a second, but we'll start with Brito. It's sinker change pitch to contact. He didn't really get enough ground balls for a guy that is sinker change. And I, you know, we just, you just alluded yeah. to it, how we don't love the sinker change unless you're a ground ball guy. Sinker's in 96. That's what it averaged last year. Change ups at 89. And, you know, both of those have been his best pitches. Those are the two pitches that he lands for a strike 70% of the time. But a ground ball rate of just 46% across the entire arsenal is not what you want to see from a sinker change guy. He does mix in a four seamer that was not good for him. I think he should just kind of phase that out. And then the slider and the curve and the cutter just weren't really good for him. So his sinker and changeup are his two best pitches and they kind of have the same action to it. I think that he can be a spot start kind of bulk inning eater type of guy. I don't really know what it looks like for Johnny Beardo because he's going to be 26. And again, it's fastball changeup. The slider's fringy. How is this guy going to get out is kind of my question, other than trying to get more ground balls. I don't know. I, I think he does have to lean back into the ground ball thing because in 2022, this guy was actually one of the better pitchers in AAA because he was getting ground balls at will. Like the ground ball rate, if I'm not mistaken, was north of 50% for him in Scranton in 2022. And this year I was, I don't want to say excited because it's hard to get excited about a ground ball guy in AAA, but um he threw 90 innings any which way. He was a Swiss Army knife for the Yankees, and, and they needed one. They needed 13 starts from him, but they also needed 13 appearances out of the bullpen or, you know, somewhere around that number. But, yeah, like, I don't know, sinker, changeup. I wish the curveball was better, but the curveball yeah. got hammered. Yeah. Like, he just yeah. needs a breaking pitch in some form or fashion. But, you know, if he's if he's your long man when a game gets out of hand, I'm not – I'm not too beat up about well, that. I think threw, Vasquez is actually the more intriguing one. He threw well in the big leagues too, uh, you know, out of the bullpen. So I think it just looks like he's kind of a long man and like reliever type because at least his stuff will tick up a little bit more. And uh, I, I, I do want to correct the fast. The four seamer wasn't good for him over the course of the year. But if you look at the last 10 appearances, it was closer to 96, 97, uh, a little bit harder. And he had a little bit better of a feel for it. All of a sudden in those last 10 appearances, that four-seamer was pretty effective, actually. He would sneak it in around 18% of the time and buzz it up at the top of the zone and actually picked up a, a lot of strikeouts on that, relatively speaking, because it was getting crushed before. So I think he learned the nuance of being able to change the eye level there. So it's sinker hard, change up softer down, and then buzz that four-seamer up. I think that helps kind of take negate some of the lack of breaking ball that you, you want to see. So he could kind of be that out of the bullpen and multi-inning relief but you're not going to be able to be sinker change up four seam and turn a lineup over and, and keep going. So I think he's kind of viewed as that, as that bridge guy. And that's fine because yeah, again, he's a complimentary piece here. And Michael King, of course, is the headliner here who I think is one of the most underrated starting pitchers in the sport, which we've talked about in the, in the yeah. baseball show, but Randy Vasquez has better overall stuff and is more of a classic Yankees pitching prospect in the respect that he's got that sweeper. He's got that, like he's a shorter, loose, free arm, let it rip. Maybe not as consistent with the command because of that, but he has more stuff potential. I think Brito's safer 
by by a fair margin just because he's going to be able to go, go into the big leagues and at least has a role carved out. I'm still trying to figure out where I see Vasquez because he is four-seamer sinker as well. But that, again, the sweeper or the curveball that kind of is a sweepy curveball is his best pitch, but he struggled to command it last year. He landed for a strike just 57% of the time. So if I'm not mistaken, this guy was at a six-pitch mix that he didn't go to any offering more than 26% of the time in his 37 and two big league innings. And, you know, like I'm, I'm just ripping this from Savant. So I know that if you guys are following along on baseball Savant, like you're seeing exactly what I'm seeing, but I don't know if you're looking at, you know, different type of data, but I've got a six, six pitch mix. He was going to every pitch between like 12 and 26% of the time. But if you combine four seam and sinker usage, it's 50% fastball usage. And like, you know, okay, that's fine. Fifty percent's a, a fine number, but you know, you, you got to be ninety-six if you're doing that. So yeah, he could go one of two ways, like you're you know talking about, because we don't know what the role is yet. He could either be a sits pitch mix guy and and get through five innings, or he could scrap the pitches that aren't that good and that he turns into a three or four inning guy. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's what makes the most sense. Kind of that opener type or that that middle reliever. So I, I like, I might like Brito's safety a little bit more and, you know, Vasquez may have a little bit more potential with the breaking ball. So you see what you got there. Regardless, these are two arms that I think are going to plug in. If you have an emergency, they can open for you, go three innings, or you'll be that middle relief for you that can clean up when your starter doesn't go very far and, and try to keep you in the ball game. And might I just say, if the Yankees don't do any addition uh, in the next month or so to their starting rotation. When June rolls around, a lot of Yankee fans are going to be saying, damn, I wish we had Johnny Brito to fall back on. I wish we had Vasquez to fall back on. King and Brito and Vasquez and Thorpe just kind of felt like the Yankees emptying their reserves. To go well, and get Juan Soto, yes, but like, where's the pitching depth? Yeah, I'm okay with parting with Vasquez. You know, it's... It's the Vasquez and Brito in addition to Thorpe, in addition to King, like it does. You do definitely. And, and then addition to Fitz, just going to your division rival right before. But I yes. think that was the price that they were willing to pay to be able to retain a Chase Hampton and a Will Warren. Chase Hampton and Will Warren are two guys that I think are closer to Drew Thorpe than they are closer to Brito and Vasquez, right? So I think they wanted to keep those two guys and they felt, hey, those guys are depth first too and and have at least – number four, maybe even number three upside in the case of Hampton. So that part is, is I think why they were willing to give up a little bit more in terms of the total bodies and preserve their, their highest upside guys in Hampton and, and um, Will Warren real quick on the Marlins side. And then we'll actually, we'll, we'll talk about, I think on the, on the second half of this, we'll talk Marlins trade Tyler O'Neill. The 40-man space swap that we talked about a little bit in the Dodgers side of things. And then we'll talk about the rumored Glass Now deal. But before we get into that, a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, so let's talk about the Bendix swap. And that's because it's another raised Marlins seal. I would love to see a breakdown of how, what percentage of the Marlins trades that have been made over the last two to three years have been trades with the Rays. And now it's going to be even funnier because we've got Peter Bendix now in Miami and there's so many guys I, that he wants from, I guess, his his old ball club and who he can pluck. And he probably knows who they undervalue or who they just aren't as high on. And here's a perfect example. Miami got Vidal Bruhan and Calvin Fauche and Tampa Bay in return gets Eric Lara, Andrew Lindsay, and Jake Mangum, who is the player to be named later. Lara is another one of those lower level guys with intrigue. We'll get into him in a second. Vidal Bruhan's a prospect that if you've been listening, not a prospect anymore, but if you've been listening since the uh, locked on MLB prospect days, um, that was a guy that I, I have just never really enjoyed i don't know i just i never saw it with him i never really did and now it's you don't you know you don't have the stats in front of you do you uh no but i i know that they're not good i've never really understood it and i know the marlins need shortstop depth but i don't even think he's that good of a defensive shortstop i know they need center field depth a little bit too so i guess he could plug in there he's going to be a utility guy for them but like how many john birdies do you need fauche is actually an interesting reliever i know he didn't do great in the big leagues but the stuff is nasty and if the, if it can come together again this is kind of the marlins like to go after those relievers and i think with mel stoudemire they can kind of get something out of him and and make him a, a solid relief piece for them but i think if you're the rays you got to feel good again because the way this ends up working is it's similar to the xavier edwards deal where again the marlins they get a guy that may end up having a role for them but it's extremely limited ceiling wise and then the rays pluck some of the lower level Marlins that are really intriguing. I mean, they got Suarez, Santiago Suarez, who's an electric right-hander who I think could be really good, very far off, but they get him in that Edwards deal. And I mean, you have a lot to dream on there. Laura, there's something to dream on. Lindsay, there's something to dream on. Mangum's emergency outfield depth, but let's talk about, do you have, do you want to talk about Bruhan at all? Or do you want to just get into Laura and Lindsay? No, I just want a quick uh, quick question for you when it comes to Vidal Bruhan because you don't have his stats up. 272 major league plate appearances. What do you think his slugging percentage is? 220. 221. Oh, my gosh. No way. Bingo. <laughs> nice. Yeah, 221. Uh, not nice for Vidal Bruhan, but nice no. for you. Now, Eric Lara. <laughs> so Laura right now is, is, is kind of a guy that's not going to slug a ton, uh, but watching some video just from the, the DSL left-handed hitting shortstop who's six two one sixty seventeen 17 years old and a pretty sweet swing. Like, I think that's a guy you want to hold on to Ray's obviously ID'd him as hey, there's some intrigue here. I know he was born in 2006, so it's going to take a while, but that there's something to like there. And with the Marlins, you know, position player wise, you got to dig deep to find something of, of intrigue, find a player of intrigue. And I think for, for what the Rays are getting here, I think there's a lot of upside relative to what they gave up. So Laura far off 
put up some really good numbers though in the DSL. I usually take those with a grain of salt, but it is an advanced swing from the left side. If he fills out, could tap into power that's well below average right now, but the field of hits good. And I will say, Lindsay, Andrew Lindsay has a really cool story and loud stuff. And I think this is a guy that the Rays definitely, I don't even think I'm going to say, I think the Rays definitely ID'd this guy and said, let's get him in the deal. He's older. You know, the Marlins don't have that much money into him as not, you know, a top end draft pick, but the stuff is really good. And maybe we can get something out of this guy. He's fun, man. Uh, do you want to dive into the the background of him, or do you want me to? Yes, I would love for you to do that. I, I you've got so, it down. You were you you were informing me before we recorded. Yeah, because I, I was just kind of looking at the arsenal. I was like, wow, this guy's really good, and he was actually like overall like more reliable than Dolander was at Tennessee, and he he wasn't in the weekend rotation. I think he was a bullpen guy and maybe a sporadic midweek starter until April, and then all of a sudden he became the Friday slash Saturday with Dolander kind of functioning as the one B to Lindsay's one a, cause they were like, wait, this guy's just having a better year than yeah. Dolander is at Tennessee. But Lindsay is, is what mid nineties on the heater can run it up to the high nineties has really good shape and has that, that lower release point. Like, I don't know the exact release height. I don't know the data on that, but I can tell you, it looks like he is getting down on the Hill and he's working really well from, from that lower release point with that hard fastball. But, but the backs story rural tennessee this cat's from he goes to walter state community college in tennessee for two years so he's a two-year juco pitcher then he transfers to charlotte and he was fine i think you've run into this with certain coaches i've run into it with certain coaches i have no idea if it's a coach thing or it was just baseball dragging him down in general but i think he was just a little bit burnt out so he quit baseball altogether he was done playing and then after that year at Charlotte, he he did not play the 2022 season. After that year where he didn't play, he was coaching Little League, and he was like, wait, I love this shit. So he started throwing in the Appy League, if I'm not mistaken. He was like, wait, I love this shit. And then he ended up committing to Tennessee, and he has that great 2023 season in Tennessee. So this guy like actually quit baseball for a year, didn't throw in college in 2022, and then comes back in 23 and is in the weekend rotation for the Tennessee Volunteers and makes over $300,000 in signing bonus. Yeah. And I think is going to be a big league reliever at, at the very least. It, you mentioned the release point, Jack. Four, eight. Yeah. MLB averages five, nine. And this guy's six, three. So he throws, and I always talk about how sinkers are generally better from, you know, a higher release point because it just, it, it uh, accentuates the, the tumble or like the sink. But if you have a low release sinker from like this kind of low three quarters and you get this kind of pronation, you get this ridiculous movement and this crazy dive that is just outlier unique, right? And you just want to give hitters a look that they don't have or that they don't normally get. And if you do that, you're going to make them uncomfortable. If you make them uncomfortable, you're going to get outs. That's what he does. He's getting 17, 18 inches of horizontal from a four, eight release point. And it's just darting. And his best pitch is this sweepy slider that goes the exact opposite direction. So I don't think he's going to be able to go like turn lineups over because I think it's going to be a a more difficult arsenal to execute against lefties. And especially if they're laying off the slider, how else do you get guys out? But there's a reason why he ran a 63% ground ball rate last year. And there's a reason why I think the Rays targeted this guy. 
he's going to be a nasty reliever. I really think that. So good piece. And I think they're going to fast track him. I think he'll be up pretty quick. at already 24 years old. And I mean, that slider is gross. Lindsay's a fun arm. It's just a classic raise weird release. They always go for those outlier releases. And there's a reason why, I mean, some intern's job is probably not even intern, but some, somebody in that front office is a young guy, a young guy or girl's job is probably to find these weirdos when it's a low budget trade and, and identify them. Lindsay's a weirdo in the best way. So you said 4.8 or 4.9? I think it's like 4.85. 4.85. Okay. Can you do me a quick favor and look at Joyce's release? Because when I watched that guy, I just saw a starter Joyce and it wasn't 105, but like Ben Joyce came from there. And if Ben Joyce was throwing a sinker, I was like, wow, that's a ground ball machine. It's It would be Gratterall-esque, I think. Ben and Joyce it, is 4.8. It would have gotten the whiff. Yeah, I, it's the same thing where it's not sidearm, but it's like they come from this slingshot on the side. It's mm-hmm. Bumgarner with a shorter radius. Mm-hmm. And Tennessee might just be teaching that. It's like, hey, you're going to throw a billion miles an hour if you from do right that. Here. Look at Ben Joyce. And Lindsey leaned into it, man. I have no idea if he threw like that at Charlotte, but there's there's something about that arm swing and that slot that I love a sinker coming out of. It's awesome. And, and I think it's better for, for Lindsey because Joyce is kind of, dead zone shape and yeah, or sorry. Yeah. Joyce is kind of dead zone shape and Lindsay gets this crazy horizontal. You want to get away from the dead zone. Cause you already have a funky release, like have something else shape wise. That's also going to get you away from what guys are normally used to seeing. And I think that's kind of the missing piece right now with Joyce aside from health. But when you throw one oh one, the shape doesn't matter as much. And if you throw one oh one from that spot, as long as he stays healthy, it, it should play moving on to, and then Jake Mangum, great defensive center fielder, bat to ball, switch hitter, just consistently put up good numbers in the in the minor leagues, but chases too much. And I think that's kind of been the criticism on him there and obviously limited power, but definitely a good emergency outfielder to have there in AAA. The Tyler O'Neill trade, short and sweet. You can talk about it. Nick Robertson and Victor Santos, Tyler O'Neill going over to the Red Sox. The Red Sox aren't really in a position to be trading much pitching. They do move a reliever. The Cardinals are kind of collecting relievers right now, like infinity stones. I mean, we saw them in the rule five. We said, I feel like they're just kind of picking up guys left and right. Even in some of these smaller deals, it seems to always be like they're looking for relievers. Robertson didn't do great in his big league debut, but I like a lot of what he has going on beneath the hood. You got a 96 mile an hour fastball with good shape. You've got a nasty change up uh, with about eight miles per hour of separation, sometimes nine. And I think those two pitches alone from a six, six guy who really works downhill and gets on you. Like, I think, I think that there was a little bit of bad luck in his MLB debut. And I do think that this could be a solid reliever for them. Uh, it's Tyler O'Neill. So you're not going to be worried about trading a reliever, but the Cardinals, I mean, they feel like this is somebody that could help them in the bullpen this year. To be honest, I have nothing to add about these guys. I didn't know who they were before this Tyler yeah. O'Neill trade. Like, I, I don't know. Enough. I feel like I'd be doing a disservice if I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm going on baseball reference now. And I'm telling you what I, what I know. Like I, I didn't know anything about these yeah, guys. Uh, that's more than fair enough. Victor Santos. I don't know much on uh, to be, to be honest as well. I mean, he's, he has only really thrown in the winter league. I think this, this past year. So I don't know if he was hurt. I don't know what the deal was, uh, but with, with Santos, I mean, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know what you really get from him other than kind of just a, an emergency depth arm, good change up as well. Now we'll, we'll see, we'll see what they got there, but Again, it's kind of a, a big league reliever and a flyer. It's crazy that that's where Tyler O'Neill's value is at now, but that is where it's yeah. at. 
the 40 man swap we, we talked briefly about, so we don't need to get too deep into it. I'll, I'll kind of just kick it over to you. Cause I feel like I spoke mostly about it on that Dodgers top prospect episode, but we might have some people that stumbled upon this episode to catch up on some of the other deals and wanted to hear our thoughts. I think the consensus is that Vivas is the better prospect. If you like surveyed prospect analysts around the world or whatever, I personally think Trey Sweeney is a more valuable asset because I think there's more ways that he can impact the game. He can stay on the left side of the infield. There's more power to dream on. The hit tool is not bad. I think it, it's at least average. The approach is solid. Vivas is a plus hitter, but not a lot of juice, well below average juice, limited to second base, not the fleetest of foot. This was an opportunity for the Dodgers to open up a 40-man spot, and I think the Yankees see Vivas as someone that's better than Sweeney because, obviously, Yankees have the leverage here, considering that they had to unload two 40-man spots with the Dodgers and Victor Gonzalez, big league reliever. So technically that'd be you know, kind of offsetting that, but I felt like the Yankees had the leverage and I feel like the Dodgers felt like they kind of pulled a fast one and may have got the better prospect here in Trey Sweeney, who I do think is just kind of a victim of prospect fatigue as a first round pick and all of that good stuff and nothing showing crazy. I just don't know how people could have Vivas ahead of him because I just feel like Sweeney is a much more complete baseball player. Well, and, and Sweeney's a shortstop and Vivas isn't a shortstop. That's kind of where I stand on this. So obviously the prospect, um, the prospect appeal is going to be greater with Sweeney, the shortstop, as opposed to Vivas, the second baseman. Uh, there, there's also like way more to dream on with Sweeney, which in turn makes him a better prospect. But in terms of better role player, like Vivas is the better role player, but Sweeney can turn into an everyday player. I don't know if Vivas is an everyday player. And, um, it, it, it's funny, like 2021, all I heard about in the Dodger organization was Vivas and Leonard, Vivas and Leonard. Like it's, it's those two, they are, they are the future middle infield of the LA Dodgers. And yeah. now Leonard's in, in Detroit. And I think he's going to carve out a role in Detroit in 2024. I do believe that as, as a bench batter utility guy. Um, and I think Vivas is a great security blanket. If Glaber gets hurt, mm-hmm. um, or if, you know, they want to DH Glaber a little bit when Stanton gets hurt, notice when, not if, but um, <laughs> it's, I, I think it's going to be mutually beneficial here because the Dodgers needed space to add Shohei freaking Otani to their 40 man yeah. roster. They also needed space to add Joe Kelly to their 40 man mm-hmm. roster. And they got rid of a guy where they have plenty of backup. Uh, and that's, you know, second base. He's not going to be able to fill in at shortstop. Like there's a reason you didn't see Vivas this past year. Uh, and you saw Miguel Rojas, like they would have shoved yeah. him up if they felt like he could hold it down at shortstop, but he couldn't. No, no. Um, I will say like, there is something super safe about an 11% walk rate and a 10% yeah, K rate. That's like, the thing every year. You almost guaranteed to have a bench piece here. And, and, you know, Sweeney could come up to the big leagues. Like he can't hit lefties really at all. Yeah, so he's already looking at a bulk platoon role. And if he struggles against some better stuff, like that's where it gets a little tough. Where as with Vivas, you know, he's going to put bat on ball. At least he can give you some decent defense at second base and just be this like, I don't know, this bench piece that, that is contact oriented. He does have some sneaky pop, at least to the pull side. The the ever, average axis of velocity is well below average, but he does have some sneaky pull side power and all of his home runs he had 13 last year were to the pull side. So I know that the conversation about the short porch for every lefty we talk about is, is a little tired as they go to the Yankees. But this is one guy who could squeeze out a little bit more pop because of that. And if you look at the spray charts, he had a lot of flyouts that you know technically would have snuck out at Yankee Stadium. So it is worth noting. He could just be a good fit there. Give us but, expected homers by yeah, the ballpark. It, 
expected homers were probably higher by ballpark if you if you put them over in, in Yankee Stadium. I'm looking at several fly balls that were outs that would have been gone there. So that part helps. He did have some bad batted ball luck at a 284 Babbitt, but I think part of that, you know, is because he doesn't hit the ball hard at all. So it, it's it's an interesting mold, yep. but at the end of the day, like I don't think either team is going to be really pissed either way. And I think the Dodgers really did need some legitimate, to your point, shortstop depth, someone that could in an emergency be able to plug in and hold it down because they don't really have that much of that in the system, believe it or not. Uh, last but not least, we'll wrap up with glass. Now the, the rumored glass now Margot for Pepio DeLuca and whatever deal. No, I, I feel like there has to be some more pieces to that, but maybe not. Margot is really a salary dump. So yes. yeah, because he's owed what? Nine, nine million, ten and a half million, something like that. He signed that weird extension, man. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, the Rays who notoriously don't give out money, give, you know, pretty decent chunk of money to Margot. Uh, I think that's kind of just a dump because we'll start with DeLuca. Like we just talked about him. He's top 15 prospect in the Dodger system. I think number 15 or 13. I mean, where we had him DeLuca. I think if you gave him 93 games, he puts up a better slash line than what Manuel Margot did last year with probably just as good defense. I know Margot used to be that savant out there, but he's been banged up. He just isn't the same defender. He's fine. But I think if you put DeLuca out there for 93 games, I think he gives you something close to, if not better, than Manuel Margot. They're good at maximizing the tooled out guys, man. Like, And and we talked about this with DeLuca on the last episode. He is a subdued outman where he's got the speed, he's got some power. Like, And and by power, you know, we don't mean he's popping 114s, 115s, but he's he's hitting homers. And that's the conversation that we had with DeLuca. Like, he figures out ways to put the ball over the fence. And I I do think that there are enough tools here to turn into a guy that can be labeled as toolsy. And I'm thinking about the last outfielder that the Rays traded for that was quote-unquote toolsy, and that guy has turned into a platinum glove caliber center fielder, and they're realizing a bit more than a 30% K rate, and that's Jose Siri. Like, he's not Siri. He's not as gifted as Siri. But if they see somebody that we consider tooled out, Chances are they think they can provide some seasoning to make him a, a somewhat well-rounded ball player. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's ultimately kind of the, the goal, right? And, and it's it's interesting because I feel like it's just a perfect spot. And I think the Rays kind of look at it like, okay, we're going to cash in on Margot. We're going to get a guy that – or just dump the cost there and get a guy that if we plug in, kind of try to get the most out of him, put him in the position to succeed – can end up replacing Margot's production and then some at much cheaper. And I do think, to your point, I know you've always loved DeLuca. Like, he could be a little bit better than that, and he comes with those years of control. But also, you're giving up one year of, of glass now and getting, what, four or five years of Pepiot. Pepiot looked fantastic at the end of last year, and I think that would be a really, really, really good get for the Rays who could continue to maximize this guy. It's been ups and downs for him. He's been a guy that has been really hard to figure out, and I think he's really struggled to figure out yeah, just how he wants to pitch as well. And it just felt different at the end of the year. It felt like he finally found something and things were really clicking for Ryan Pepeot. So I think that would be a really good get overall for, for the Rays. I know it doesn't sound like the sexiest, but DeLuca, as you mentioned, would be ready to go, would plug into the outfield rotation for them right away, crushes lefties. And then you have Pepeot who probably spots right into your rotation and they need some arms that can go right into the rotation that can get outs right away. I know it sucks that you're giving up a glass now, but I mean, that is a good way and to we're offset give him it. Up anyways. 
Yeah, you were going to give him up anyways. You'll probably get another flyer or two in that deal. You'll get something else in there. But you you, you got to put a guy that's probably going to play 70, 80 games for you if the deal goes through in the outfield in DeLuca. I, I do think he could play that many games for them and really pick up that Margot role. I think you're looking for him to replace Margot's production. I think he can do that exactly. But with, with a fair degree of certainty, I think it's pretty probable that he could do that. And then you get Pepe out. He's not going to match glass now, but it's one year of glass now. So you're going to get four years of production, hopefully from Pepe out. That should be nice for the Rays. And then we'll see what other pieces they can get in there. But if it was just that and nothing else involved in the trade, do you think that's a good move overall for the Rays? Do you think they're getting enough? I think they're getting enough because you got to consider the money that's changing hands in the market that needs the 30, 30 million dollars, right? Going towards the Dodgers. 35. 35. I think last now is owed 25 and Margot's owed 10. Yeah. And he's 35 million dollars for those two guys is, you know, not a lot of teams are are barging down, you know, the doors at Tropicana to 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 pay those two guys 35 million dollars. I think last now, yeah. yes. But but Margot at 10, like I, that's, that's an anchor on top of it to too. Guy. Right. Cause like last sense. night, it's like, all right, 25 for him, but it could go badly if he's not healthy, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. now on top of that, you got the 10 to Margot. Yeah. It's $35 million. It's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a and, lot of money. And, and here's the thing. The Dodgers don't necessarily feel it because apparently they have 68 and 2039. They're going to give to Shohei Otsani, but the Rays feel it. We know the Rays feel that we know the yeah. Rays feel $10 million, let alone $35 million. And they go from a guy that's going to make 25 and a guy that's going to make 10 to two guys that are going to make $750,000. And Pepio, you mentioned like in, in as, in as deeply analytical as I can put this and in as, um, I guess scholarly, as I can say this, it just looked like he had some shit to him at the end of the year. It, yeah. it looked like he was throwing with some confidence and, and I love guys that throw like they have some shit to him. And I think those are the best guys in baseball where Yes, they have the data to back it up. Yes, they have the numbers at the end of a given year. But when you show up to the ballpark, you want to see somebody compete. And it looked like Pepio was competing. He lost a ton of weight in between 22 and 23. And he looked like he was throwing angry in a good way. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated seeing that from a guy in Pepio when you didn't get it from Stone. And at points, you didn't get it from Sheehan. Like they yeah. needed Pepio last year. He's and just, I think he... that the Rays were encouraged. He's got more ways to get you out. That's the thing, too. You mentioned yeah. Stone and some of the He's just got more ways to get you out. And I think they like Sheehan long-term because of the the way this stuff plays. Or the Rays may have preferred Pepe out just because of the way he finished the year. But last eight appearances at the big league level, opponents at a, a buck seventy nine against him. The changeup, we know how disgusting that pitch is. 42% chase rate. And then he he adjusted to this cutter. And this cutter seemed to be like open up and, opening up a new world for him where – he needed that third pitch that he could command consistently. It gives him a third speed because the changeup's mid-80s, fastball's mid-90s, and his cutter's upper 80s. And he's like, finally, I don't have to be fastball changeup. I can change things. I can really do that. And I, I really think that's what helped him dominate hitters, big league hitters. In those final eight appearances, 24% K rate, 3% walk rate. This guy gained a ton of confidence, 38 Ks, five walks. So that part's really encouraging. He did give up seven home runs in that span. So it's all about keeping the ball in the yard, and we'll see if he can do that. That's going to be the question. But I think you got to feel really good about what Pepio did to finish the year, and if the Rays get him, I think they're going to help maximize you know, what he's got going on with that arsenal and, and keep growing. And I think the Rays, if they clear that money, they're going to go sign somebody else too, right? Who's going to be the next, like, Eflin that they're going to be able to bring in at 15 mil a year or whatever and maximize, and you, you pair that guy with Pepio, you might get more production then. 
you clear that money, you get Pepe out, and then you go sign another arm in ter- instead of a 70% available glass now on a good year, the Rays are probably looking at it like, like a hedge fund and looking at all the assets and saying, hey, we're probably getting more value here. And they probably will. So I think the, the trade's great for the Dodgers, ups their bot, you know, I think gives them way more upside. And ultimately, they win the World Series with a glass now pitching to the best of his ability on top of the guys that they're adding. Like you need everything to be clicking. That's the way to do it. They're pushing the chips forward if this deal is completed. And I like it for both parties, but that's all I got on that one. I like it too. Yeah. Last thing I want to do is kind of run through the depth chart for, for Tampa because it's, it's kind of bizarre. And like part of me is thinking that they do just sign Tim Anderson to a one-year deal because they need help like bad. As of right now, the catching duo is Renee Pinto and Alex Jackson. Ouch. That's not good. Like that's nowhere near as good as Bethancourt and Mejia. And that wasn't even good in 2023. First base, you got Yandy Diaz, surely. Second base, Brandon Lau, surely. Shortstop, no wonder. He's listed on fan graphs. No wonder. Um, Oslavis Basabe, Junior Caminero. You're relying on those guys to be good right away. And is Caminero going to play shortstop? I'd assume so. Third base, Isak Paredes. Is Paredes going to get traded? In the outfield, you've got a Rosarena, you got Josh Lowe, and you've got a Jose Siri. All right, perfect. But then the bench, Taylor Walls, who might be the starting shortstop. Margot, as of right now, we're factoring him out, and you got DeLuca in there, and then Harold Ramirez. And the reserve outfielders there, like the guys in AAA, Greg Jones, Cam Meisner, Tristan Peters, Mangum, Nico Holsizer, Mason Hour, like – those guys are not good enough for a team that wants to win the American no. League. So there has to be something hidden on the free agent market that we're just not seeing right no, now. That or they're going to make a trade. They're going to do something. I, I'm with you. I, I think they're going to be very active because there's no way that they're looking at that situation and saying, all right, we're good to go. And I know it's the Rays, but even then, I think that's why DeLuca is a perfect fit for them. He takes yeah. those left-handed at-bats away from from low and then spot starts here and there You know, for the other guys in the outfield. And there's a really good – you know got to just kind of spell the, the situation there, but they got to find some, some veteran, I think infield help there too. So I'm, I'm very fascinated to see how they approach this and wh- what direction they go. Tim but Anderson and Brandon fun. Crawford, man. Oh God. Tim Anderson and Brandon Crawford. I could see TA. I really could. That, that could make a lot of sense on a bounce back. Uh, but I'm sure they're very eagerly awaiting that investigation and everything to, to kind of get figured out because it's just, it puts them in such, and I know there's much more important things and, people affected, you know, in terms of their lives, but it does put them in such a tough spot. I, do, I don't envy the people that that are in charge of making roster moves right now for the Rays when you're in flux like that, right? You don't want to give up assets. And then all of a sudden, let's say Wander does end up being able to play and come back. Now you gave up assets for an infielder that's now kind of blocked. Like it's chaos. I, I can't imagine trying to navigate that. So I'm fascinated to see what the Rays do, but I know they're going to make a splash. So I'm excited to see what that is. And of course we'll break it down. So That'll do it for this episode. Uh, If you could take the second to leave a rating, subscribe to the show on YouTube. That would be great. And as always, thank you for listening. Look forward to talking prospects with you at the end of this week. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.